Hello, and welcome to the Athletic Business Podcast, the show where we talk to industry experts in the athletics, fitness, and recreation industries about the issues that matter. I'm one of your hosts, Jason Scott, and I'm the online managing editor with Athletic Business. And joining me today in the studio is executive editor Andy Berg. Andy, why don't you tell the people a little bit about what we've got on tap for today's episode? Sure, Jason. So today on the show, we'll be focusing on something that should be top of mind for folks as summer conditioning programs get underway for a lot of high schools and colleges around the country, and that is exertional heat stroke. And this is something that we run into a lot as we're keeping tabs on headlines from across the country. The stories that tend to make the national news are the most tragic ones, where an athlete, usually a young football player, collapses and sometimes even dies while exercising outside in the summer heat. Right, and I think what makes it so tragic is the fact that, you know, with the right policies, safeguards, and equipment on hand, these types of accidents can really be prevented. Yes, and later on in the episode, we'll be speaking with Dr. Douglas Casa. He's not only an expert on heat stroke and exertional heat illness, he's also survived the condition himself. So we'll be back with our interview with Dr. Casa in a bit, but first a quick break to hear from our first sponsor, DTN. DTM meteorologists take heat safety very seriously and educate sports professionals on the importance of using wet bulb globe temperature. Together, we can prevent heat-related athletic risks. Learn more at dtn.com slash heat hyphen safety. DTN, actionable insight to the nth degree. Welcome back to the show. Coming up is my interview with Dr. Douglas Casa. He's a professor with the University of Connecticut Department of Kinesiology and the CEO of the Corey Stringer Institute, as well as one of the lead authors on the official position statement from the National Athletic Trainers Association on exertional heat illness. We'll be back with more after the interview, but for now, here's Dr. Casa. Where did your interest in the subject of exertional heat illness kind of begin? I read actually uh, in in your bio that you suffered yourself from something like that once. Can you maybe tell us that story? Absolutely, yes. So back when I was 16 years old, um, I was a track and field athlete at my high school, um, and I was a a good distance runner, Mm -hmm. and um, I had always dreamed of running in the Empire State Games. So that was a summer Olympic festival that the state of New York had um, that kind of mimicked an Olympic schedule with track and field, swimming, cycling, wrestling, basketball, whatever the Olympic sports were, they had them. And the state was broken up into eight regions, and Long Island was my region. And Long Island's quite a big region to be a part of, like talking like almost a couple hundred or 150 high schools mm-hmm. um, to qualify, but only the top two people qualify in each track event. Um, so... Um, the dream was maybe not a realistic dream because that's a, quite a difficult task. And I had long dreamed of of doing that, and I tried out many times. And then finally, after my junior year, I, I went to the tryouts, and I tied for first place with another guy. We were way ahead of third, and we ran together the last lap, and the two of us made it in the 10K. Um, and so that was a huge honor for me. And um, the finals were in Buffalo on August 8th, 1985. Mm-hmm. Um, they had the wisdom to run the race at noontime, which oh, is a 25-lap race in August at noon. And they were running the sprints at night under the lights. So no risk of heat illness in the 100 and 200 meters, and they're running at 8 and 9 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, so I'm running 25-lap race at noon. It's brutally hot out. Um, the track surface is black. It's obviously just really warm. I'm running the race of my life. Um, vying for a, a third-place position on the final lap, collapsed with 200 meters to go, 
no warning signs beforehand, literally running my best time by over a minute. Um, wow. Yeah, flying, even though it was hot out, but because the competition was so good, and then got back up and then collapsed again with 50 meters to go. Oh, my gosh. So I, after 9,950 meters, 24 and whatever, seven-eighth laps, um, that second collapse, um, I was then in a coma for the next six hours. Wow. Yes. So I had an exertional heat stroke, was extremely fortunate that the athletic trainer on site was with me within a minute of that that collapsed on the final straightaway and knew it was a heat stroke, um, started cooling me on site. There was an ambulance on site that cooled during transport, and I was very fortunate that the ER doc, the, the chief of the ER actually had heat stroke experience. Uh, mm-hmm. I knew what to do and put me in an ice tub in a hospital in 1985, which was not a common at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, that evening I actually – um, watched my story on the local news when I was um, whirled out of intensive care. And oh that, that's kind of what shaped my path forward. So that was 34 years ago. Wow. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, that, that's quite a story and, and certainly um, something that would um, kick off uh, a really impressive start to your career here. Um, so I guess without getting into spe- any specific statistics, because I know that you may not have those handy, uh, about how common is that sort of thing? You know, people who are who are working out outside or in extreme heat collapsing like that? That's a good question. It's, it's really hard to judge the numbers of heat strokes because if someone doesn't die from a heat stroke, th- there's really sometimes not a good chronicle or, or evidence to know what the numbers are. Mm-hmm. Um, the deaths that, you know, we probably have a little better handle on, but I mean, in the military, we probably have a better handle on numbers of cases because there's more of a a routine, a routine way of reporting them. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's thousands and thousands of cases of heat stroke each year in America, you know, related to laborers. Think of all the people who exercise or, or have physical labor outside, you know, construction workers or people who work in the oil industry, trained wilderness firefighters, like people who have to do intense exercise in the heat um, and, and do a hard physical, you know, for hard physical labor. I mean, it's just extremely common. And then obviously, in basic training in the military and then in the athletic settings. And that's just exertional heat stroke. And then there's another countless cases of classic heat stroke that you see in the um, elderly or, you know, infants left in locked cars. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so heat stroke is, you know, without question, the, the, the biggest cause of environmental deaths, like in America, you know, versus, you know, if you compared it to lightning or earthquakes or tornadoes or um, hurricanes or, cold or anything like that, heat is by far and away the number one cause of death. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, you always kind of see that um, during the summertime, you know, like if there's uh, people who are vulnerable and there's a heat wave and the air conditioning goes out at a you know retirement facility or something like that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I remember seeing reports like that on the news growing up. And um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, heat well, can be very back- deadly. You think back 1995, you, you probably know, I don't know what your age is, but in Chicago, the horrible heat wave of 95, mm-hmm. um, 700 people died in like three days. Mm-hmm. And this is in America, you know, in a very you know, proactive, modern place. Mm-hmm. Um, and then two or three days later, we lost about 500 in New York City. Then when that same heat wave worked its way across. Oh my goodness. And then in 2003, you may or may not remember, 12,000 people died in France in one week. Wow. From heat stroke. Wow. Um, so that that's just an example, and those are numbers we're aware of. Like you know, you there's a lot of less industrialized countries that these things are happening all the time, but we just don't know those kinds of data. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to um, exertional heat stroke and, and people who are 
maybe young athletes or, you know, high school athletes. Um, are there any maybe like early warning signs that people should be on the lookout for? I know in your story you said that you were running your best time and uh, it kind of came on without any warning. Is that common? So that's a great question. Mm-hmm. So it's called prodromal. Prodromal is um, the signs and symptoms you notice before the incident, you know, gets to be bad. So in about half the cases of heat stroke, there are no prodromal signs and symptoms. Mm -hmm. So the first indication there's a problem is the person is like literally laying collapsed in front of you or, you know, is struggling very mightily during activity. Mm -hmm. But when they do have prodromal signs and symptoms, some of the most common are things like headache, nausea, dizziness, vomiting, um, just more fatigue than usual for doing the same activity that you're used to doing. Mm-hmm. Um, th- so those are just some examples of some early warning signs that if they're not typical, that that's something you might want to heed um, as maybe backing off on intensity um, to let yourself rest and recover. Mm-hmm. So is is there anything that you know coaches and maybe high school athletes or, or college athletes can find themselves doing that uh, where they get themselves into trouble uh, as far as this issue? I mean, like, is it just a matter of not listening to their bodies or, you know, That's not, a good, yeah, it's yeah. Good, good for discussion. So most of the problems in football, all the, I mean, almost all the problems related to heat stroke in football happen in practices or conditioning sessions. Right. They don't happen in games. Mm-hmm. So um, what happens in practice and conditioning sessions is you get the supervisors, whether they be the strength and conditioning coaches or the, the sport coaches who don't have good policies in place. Um, so examples would be, not having good heat acclimatization policies. That's the phasing in of activity over time. Like, so the first couple of weeks, you ramp up the amount of exercise, the intensity, the amount of equipment, um, because almost all the heat stroke deaths happen in the first three days. Um, and your body takes about seven to 10 days to develop the physiological changes that um, happen from heat acclimatization. Mm-hmm. So you enhance your exercise heat tolerance. So you want to really protect people in that first week. Another example is when people don't make modifications to the work-to-rest ratio based on the environmental conditions. Mm-hmm. So on more brutal days, no matter where you live, I mean, brutal for Maine, whatever that is, brutal for Louisiana, whatever that is, you need to make modifications to the work-to-rest ratio so that um, you're protecting your people. Um, then obviously there's things like hydration, um, making modifications to equipment and clothing as necessary. Um, then there's um, you know, being aware if one of your athletes has been sick recently or been injured recently, so they might have lost their, some of their fitness and their heat acclimatization. Um, or if they're sick, obviously, they might have a fever. Or if they're starting new medications or on certain supplements that might compromise exercise heat tolerance. Um, that's, these are all things like an athletic trainer. You guys, you know, an athletic trainer is the licensed medical professional that we mm-hmm. desperately want every high school in America to have, have one. Um, and there's still, you know, about a third of high schools that don't have athletic trainers at these football practices. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just an example of some of those things there. I mean, there are other nuances with when you have, you know, cross-country meets is a different issue than football. And each each situation, you know, creates their own nuances that you have to consider. Sure. Yeah. And, and um, I'm wondering, I guess, if there are any maybe best practices as far as acclimatization and like, yeah, I'm not sure. So the number of heat stroke cases and deaths are definitely up now compared to, you know, earlier years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's a couple of things to consider. We got to look at the level of sport first of all. The, the NCA adopted some amazingly good policies back in 2003 mm-hmm. um, for heat acclimatization for August football practices, so the mm-hmm. phasing in of activity in the August practices, and that was super helpful to decrease the incidence 
of heat strokes and heat stroke deaths. But the problem is, is that we still have a lot of college heat stroke deaths. They maybe happen in June and July during conditioning sessions because mm-hmm. it, it had traditionally not been as regulated as those August practices. Um, thankfully, the NCA just adopted new policies that were released in April, and I think they go into effect either July 1st or August 1st that are new regulations for strength and conditioning sessions that hopefully will be protective for heat stroke. Mm-hmm. But at the high school level, you may or may not be aware, but at the high school level, the policies are determined on a state-by-state level. So there's no national governing body for high school sport that actually sets these specific mandates for each state. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means each state has to be proactive enough to establish, for instance, a heat acclimatization policy, a wet bulb globe temperature policy you know, for work-to-rest modifications, mm-hmm. a cold water immersion policy, a cool first transport second policy, like everything that we would want. They have to establish those policies. So when it comes to heat acclimatization, there's only about 20 states right now out of 50 that have the full array of what we recommend for heat acclimatization policies, and that's mm-hmm. just one example of one heat policy. Mm-hmm. Um, at, the, at the Corey String Institute website, um, we did an evaluation a couple years ago of every state and where they stand with about um, 100 key items for preventing sudden death in secondary school athletics. Mm-hmm. Um, so any person who's listening to this podcast can go on our website and tap on their state and see the 100 points and see the points that their state has and which ones they're still missing for policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and that, that'll be a great resource. I'm glad that you mentioned that. Some, some states weren't thrilled with us releasing that ranking mm-hmm. um, because, you know, they didn't get ranked very well. Right. Um, but it is it is what it is. I mean, it, it was what we did. It was a 2013 document, um, a best practice document endorsed by 14 leading organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we did was just take that document and kind of created basically an Excel spreadsheet of the sentences or the recommendations in that document. Mm-hmm. And then we just then spent two years uh, evaluating where the 50 states were. And now if anybody makes changes, we... Um, every six months, we update our rubric online so that every state, you know, is getting credit for the changes that they make. And, and you know, I think it's probably uh, you're driving change in that, at that level. And I think that's probably, you know, overall good for the safety of, oh, of, uh, course. of yes. athletes, yeah. which is what we're after here. So Yeah, we're, we're totally fine if some people are mad and uncomfortable because our goal is to protecting the athletes. And some of these things are super simple strategies um, that, that, that everyone should have in place to protect athletes. And it's, it's um, a bit negligent that, that um, these adults who are supervising these children are not invoking best practices to protect them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm wondering, I guess, um, what role uh, this, you may have to kind of speculate on this, but I'm just kind of wondering what role you think, um, just like the athletic culture of a team, you know, being tough and kind of pushing through, you know, these, these walls that are in front of you or whatever as you're going through a workout, what role that plays in uh, maybe putting kids at risk? Yeah, it's interesting. I definitely think that that plays an important role, but it's so ironic that the, if you had the culture of promoting health and safety, your kids are going to have less injuries and are going to perform way better in their practices and their games, um, and you're going to have a better end result. So it's a, it's a bit ironic that, you know, sometimes they push them so hard and then the athletes are, you know, useless for the next two or three days. Mm-hmm. Um, or they've suffered a heat stroke or now, you know, whatever else might have happened because people didn't have smart, you know, scientifically driven, you know, um, strength and conditioning programs. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, and, and the biggest fact of the matter is we need to remember at the high school level is they're children, they're kids. 
Like, right. So their health and safety should be the priority over any issue that we're talking about. Right. Yeah. I mean, like the the one loss record at the end of the day, I guess, doesn't really matter that much. If yeah. You, if I mean, you... so if you were nine and one versus eight and two, and then one of your kids dead um, forever, like, is it was it is it worth being nine and one and having a kid dead? Right. You yeah. Know, and and I, like I said before, actually, the, the smarter coaches that use sports science, use sports medicine, protect their athletes, they're actually going to perform much better than the ones who abuse them because they're just, they, they lose a, a much bigger percentage of their athletes just for, from quality practices. Right, right. Um, so I, you mentioned athletic trainers earlier, and I know that that's probably, uh, would you say that that's probably your top recommendation as far as preventing uh, heat stroke or at least being you know, kind of a, a backstop if something like that were to occur? So, yeah, it's a good question about the athletic trainers. Yeah, so we're – one of our main focuses, of course, trainers to try to get an athletic trainer in every high school in America. And mm-hmm. um, to that end, we actually wanted to find out what the current status was. So we actually contacted every single high school in America. So all 20,000 high schools we contacted. Wow. Um, not a subset, but actually every single one. Um, and we found out about a third of ath- high schools have full-time athletic trainers, about a third have part-time athletic trainers, and about a third have no access to an athletic trainer. Mm-hmm. Um, so about two-thirds right now are at least having the benefit of an athletic trainer. Um, but the athletic trainer is the key one f- person for us because the athletic director just is not trained to um, have all of the prevention strategies in place for all the different things, not just heat illness that we're talking about now. I mean, whether it be cardiac or head injuries or an orthopedic injury, mm-hmm. um, whatever we're discussing, the athletic trainer is specifically a licensed medical professional um, trained to prevent, recognize, treat, rehab, and return an athlete, um, you know, in that particular setting. Mm-hmm. With the advent, thankfully, of, of enhanced health and safety policies, um, we just don't want the, the athletic director or a coach overseeing all these health and safety policies. We want a licensed medical professional. Right, right. I'm just wondering, I guess, what are the some of your top recommendations as far as um, you know, preventing heat stroke and, and heat illness. Um, so what are some of your... Uh... Yeah, I think we should also at least mention treatment while I'm on this podcast. Sure, yeah. Um, but prevention, we just to review the things, the, the biggest ones I, I mentioned earlier, but I'll recap. So there's four huge items for preventing um, a heat stroke. One is um, fitness is the most important, is getting your athletes fit first um, before you start giving them a lot of heat stress um, because fitness is very protective in the heat. Um, second is heat acclimatization, so specifically going through um, a, a week or two of gradually increasing intensity and duration, exercising the heat so your body can go through the physiological changes. Third um, is making modifications based on the environmental conditions, so measuring the wet bulb globe temperature or WBGT and making modifications to work-to-rest ratios based on those measures. And fourth is um, hydration, uh, making sure that there's um, um, frequent access, free access to fluids during activity, not just at breaks, not ever using hydration as punishment during um, certain workouts, um, things like that. But those four factors are really important for um, um, prevention, and I would put education in there of those items as well of the key constituent groups, athletic directors, coaches, parents, athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've got to remember we can do everything possible to try to prevent a heat stroke from happening in the first place, but we can't prevent all cases of heat stroke. Mm-hmm. Um, and when a heat stroke happens, it's imperative that it's recognized quickly um, and that we then cool them aggressively, and then we cool them on site until the cooling is done. Because if you can get someone's temperature down under 104 within 30 minutes, survivability has been 100%. 
So we know you can survive the heat stroke if you treat them correctly. So you've got to, if someone's struggling during intense exercise in the heat and you rule out, you know, cardiac or other obvious things, you get their rectal temperature to know their start temperature. You get them into a cold water immersion tub, which almost all colleges now have nearby and all pro teams and even most high schools now have cold water immersion tubs that mm-hmm. practice for football. You get them in the cold water immersion tub, you call an ambulance, but then when the ambulance arrives, you wait till your cooling is done in the cold water immersion tub so they're under that 104 range, and then you ship them to the hospital. And if that's all done within 30 minutes, the survivability is 100%. And that's what we're working super hard to try to make sure there's policy and procedures in place to have the prevention place things in place, but then also have the right treatment strategies in place. I mean, I, my big thing is, is, is for parents, coaches, and athletic directors, or if, they, if you don't have some of the policies in place that we're discussing right now, you don't have to wait for the state to make it an official policy. Your high school can invoke best practice policy at any time and should do it and not, not wait for some other entity to make it official that you have to do it. All right, so we're back in the studio. Um, Jason, great interview Thank uh, you. with Dr. Casa, and 16 years old. I mean, that's some scary stuff. When yeah, to him. yeah. I mean, as Dr. Casa alluded to, I mean, like he was really fortunate to have made it out of that situation alive. Um, but unfortunately, for a lot of young athletes around the country, people aren't as well prepared as uh, you know the doctors and professionals and athletic trainers around Dr. Casa at the time of his accident. Uh, work so right um, and, and look at just even the, even the planning hopefully you know that was quite a few years ago mm-hmm. hopefully we've come a long way where even the planning because that's just the first thing mm-hmm. they had the long distance runners running in the hottest part of the day right not not a great idea no <laughs> no and then the shorter races took place later at in evening the, yeah right which doesn't make any sense that does not make any sense so yeah definitely a, a good point to take uh, take away from this whole thing is um, just to be wary of uh, when you're going to be asking um, your student athletes to uh, be working their hardest. You don't want to be doing that during the hottest uh, portion of the day. You want right. to be making sure that you um, kind of account for the temperature outside, as Dr. Casa mentioned, uh, and, and make sure that you're monitoring and you're modifying your practice conditions kind of based on um, the conditions. Right. And everything from removal of, of equipment, mm-hmm. um, ang- I mean, some of the, the conditions that you're taking into account are even the angle of the sun. Mm-hmm. So where the sun is in the sky, humidity, it's all these factors. It's not just one. I think that's important to note. That's right, yeah. Uh, one of the big things that stood out to me in the interview was the fact that uh, Dr. Casa said that heat really is um, one of the biggest causes of environmental deaths. Um, and that's even accounting some of the you know, headline-grabbing you know, traditional, sure. n- traditional news like you know, natural disasters, Right. You know, big storms, hurricanes, that sort of thing. Um, really, heat can be a, a really dangerous condition. Um, so it's important you know, that we pay attention to this, especially sure. when we're asking our student athletes to, um, you know, be raising their internal temperatures just by, um, you know, doing up downs and running laps and stuff like that. Right, and it, and I think it's you know worth noting too that temperature climate is changing mm-hmm. in different areas of the country and those areas that are already. Um, stricken with a lot of heat illness and um, and strokes uh, are going to see even more days where that's yeah, that could be happening. Could it's supposed to uh, I believe reach um, later in the spring and then later in the fall. Mm-hmm. So you're you're kind of I don't know if I said that right, but mm-hmm. you know, uh, but more days that it's going to be hot. 
right. basically. Yeah, and, and another uh, point that Dr. Casa made was, you know, it's important that we um, take into account, into account where we are, you know, in the country, you know, like mm-hmm. just because uh, it's, you know, if, if you're if you happen to be in Maine or Minnesota, you know, it can be a little bit cooler uh, during the, the summer. Those temperatures don't get as hot right. or as high as they do, you know, down south. But, yeah. you know, it feels hot to your student athletes and you, you got to make sure that um, you do that proper acclimatization that uh, Dr. Casa was talking about. Right. Uh, make sure that, you know, you get your student athletes ready for the conditions that they're that they're in. Yeah, he said actually said that's one of the most important things is make sure that they are. Uh, fitness is one of the greatest safeguards against this kind of thing. That's right. The other thing I thought was interesting, and possibly the reason that he's alive, is that they had the the people treating him had uh, the right equipment on hand, mm-hmm. and in in the ambulance, and then at the hospital they actually had a. A cooling tub, mm-hmm. um, which is one of the things that the Corey Stringer Institute suggests that even high schools have on hand when this kind of thing happens, so they can immediately get that person cooled down. That's right. Yeah, that cold water immersion is very important to bringing down that uh, body temperature out of that dangerous uh, area. So, you know, if in the event that something like this is, is happens at your high school or at your college, you know, it's really important that you have one of those cold tubs nearby. Right. Um, even if you never need it, you know, and God, and God forbid you do, but you know, just uh, being prepared, you know, it's yeah. uh, it's definitely worth it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, any final any, any final thoughts that you uh, that you had, Andy? No. Uh, great great interview. I hope that uh, you know our audience and those that uh, can value uh, take value from this information uh, are able to implement it. And I think it's it's at everybody's um, it's a, a in everybody's interest to really ensure that we prevent these kinds of uh, terrible tragic accidents. Yeah, definitely something that we should be taking th- seriously. So hopefully you got something out of uh, our interview with Dr. Casa and this this discussion that we've been having, uh, and you're ready to implement these best practices at your facility. So coming up, we'll uh, we'll wrap things up here, but uh, we got one more break ahead. So stick around. Athletic Business Magazine is a trade publication that 40,000 athletics, fitness, and recreation professionals rely on to find the tips, trends, and products they need to be successful. Want to join? Head on over to athleticbusiness.com slash subscribe to get started or renew your free subscription. That's going to do it for the inaugural episode of the Athletic Business Podcast. Thanks so much to Dr. Douglas Costa for joining us, and thanks to you for listening. We've got more information on the Corey Stringer Institute, including links in the show notes. Head on over to ksi.yukon.com for more information. We'd also like to thank today's sponsor, DTN. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or review on your podcast platform of choice. It'll help people find the show. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter and print magazine. Both are totally free to qualified industry professionals. You know, I was talking to a a source for an article in our next issue, and she told me that she literally tears out old articles from the magazine and keeps them in a binder. So it's good stuff. You should read it. And we'll be back with another episode in two weeks. But until then, take it easy.